welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. If you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. <clears throat> and there we'll find that despite intense opposition, persecution, uh, Paul and Barnabas have remained persistent in proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming God's word, even after being driven from Pisidian Antioch uh, by the Jews who had incited violence against them. And as I begin, I'd, I'd like to note something extraordinary from the closing verses of chapter 13 uh, about what had prompted such hatred and violence. <clears throat> Looking back at verses 44 through 52, you know, th- there was a particular doggedness within Paul and Barnabas Concerning the word, uh, the term used there for word uh, in the Greek, and in these multiple references to the word of God is the Greek logos, very common word uh, for, used for the word of God. Uh, and you can note then in verse 44 that nearly the whole city assembled to hear the logos or the word of God. Uh, next in verse 46 to the Jews... Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the Logos, or the Word of God, be spoken to you first. Then in verse 48, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And finally, at least for the chapter 13, uh, in verse 49, uh, that which was being spread throughout the whole region by Paul and Barnabas was the word of the Lord. Four times in just these few verses, we're assured that that a battle had ensued over the word. And in verse 3 of chapter 14 now, uh, it will appear again, the logos. This time it is described as the word of his grace. And it becomes the reason Paul and Barnabas are eventually expelled from another city, Iconium, as they continue, verse 7 reveals to us, to evangelizo, or evangelize. It's translated in most of your English Bibles as preach the gospel. That phrase at the the close of uh, this verse is more literally translated They kept on evangelizing. In fact, I believe it's a Holman Christian Standard Bible that that words it that way. Instead of preached the gospel, uh, they literally said they kept evangelizing. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas kept on, you know, doggedly urging their audiences to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Accept him as the Christ, the fulfillment of God's word, the Logos, and of all promises God had ever made to Israel. It's a theologian named Wayne Grudem you might have heard of. Uh, He designates uh, uh, this understanding formally as uh, fulfillment theology. 
he describes it. Uh, And what fulfillment theology suggests is all promises God made to King David and the nation of Israel, as we saw last week, they're fulfilled in Christ to his holy bride, the church. Again, Grudem refers to this as fulfillment theology. So if you want to experience Israel's promises, enter the church. It is the church that receives the Messiah's supreme affection in love. It's comprised of brothers and sisters, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, we have seen, who've trusted in the holy name of Jesus, acknowledging that through him, there is forgiveness of sins being proclaimed. So, so what has really upset the Jews in these cities? It's not only that Paul is proclaiming to the Gentiles in, in Jesus that, that, that now all nations are blessed, but also how the Apostle Paul could defend this from the Word of God. He's, he's, last week he cited the sacred writings uh, attributed, attributing to King David, the writings of King David, the, the writings of prophets like Isaiah, and many, many other prophets. Really, all the Old Testament writers point to this. On the day of his resurrection, Jesus he appeared and then walked with two men on the road to Emmaus. And we find in Luke chapter 24, in verse 27, that it says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to these men the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus earlier had told Israel, or the Jews in Jerusalem and Israel, you know, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They says, but it's these that testify to me. Boy, what a bold statement for Christ to make. So, so no matter what route you take through the Logos, no matter what path you go through the Bible, expect it will make much of Jesus. Because wherever you begin reading in the Word, soon you're going to bump into Him. He's going to be staring right back at you. And this is the approach of proclamation that the Apostle Paul takes. Of course, remember now that for Paul and Barnabas, the Word of God in existence at this time, we're right around 48 AD, consisted of the 39 Old Testament books. It will be our Lord's brother James who who pens the first epistle for the New Testament, presumably dated around 49 AD. Yet Paul, he's been masterful in showing the early church how the Mosaic Law And how the prophets and the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, they all preach Christ. They all point to Jesus Christ. And the hearers, Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, they're being saved through the gospel as as it was written according to King David, we saw last week, and Isaiah, we saw last week. Christ has been raised, it's witnessed 
by the apostles on one occasion, more than 500 people at one time. And uh, this is the type of preaching that they are doing. They're, they're preaching the word, the written word, the Old Testament words, the sacred writings as Paul described them to young Timothy. And the Logos is the, the only means and the only mechanism the Spirit uses to raise the spiritual dead, those who are dead in their sins, and regenerate them to spiritual rebirth. As the sacred writings are the wisdom of God that leads to salvation through faith, 2 Timothy 3.15, revealed to us. And they preach the Logos because the Word is, is breathed out by God. It's, it's God-breathed, as we read earlier in our Scripture reading. Theo, God, Neustos, breathe. God breathed out the Word of God to promote welfare, training in righteousness to give life. God's breath in the Word reaches out and gives life for those who believe. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Word is the source of life. It should not take us by too much surprise then um, that what we are seeing in Antioch and Iconium ultimately is a battle for the Word. It's a battle for the Word of God, a confrontation concerning what the Word of God says, what Scripture says. And Paul and Barnabas are being persecuted over it because they they take a courageous stand for what God says. You know, they're not oppressed, folks, for setting up bounce houses and handing out cotton candy. They're preaching the Word in Iconium and Antioch and the surrounding cities. Today's passage in Acts chapter 14 concerns whether the word will be proclaimed when it is no longer welcome, who will do it, and just how long are Paul and Barnabas going to be able to withstand the persecution for the sake of the word? Because the life of every local church utterly depends upon it. The church depends upon it. Reading from Acts chapter 14 and verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved He stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, uh, they, Paul and Barnabas, spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and and some with the apostles, and, and when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, Paul and Barnabas became aware of it, 
They fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they kept evangelizing. They continued to preach the gospel. Well, you know, uh, we should be aware, we should recall uh, as we begin that, that these cities are hearing the gospel for the very first time. Also that Paul and Barnabas have well, they had offered a new understanding of the Scriptures. One that the locals had never before heard. Uh, I would describe it as a Christ-centered understanding. A Christ-centered view. A, a fulfillment view of all that God had promised. And, and those who had previously in Iconium visited the synagogue, they had been taught that they, well, they must observe the law. Must observe the law of Moses, present the prescribed sacrifices at their appropriate time, etc., 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 in order to be pleasing to God, in order to stand righteous before God. That, that was the understanding, the local understanding in Iconium. And, and that version of Judaism, the old covenant, now, that which the local Gentiles were conditioned to hearing when the Scriptures were read, well, that was not very good news. You know, the Levitical law, it prescribed a, a long and hard path, difficult path. Well, wait, impossible path. A heavy yoke to bear. Remember, it's Jesus who, who told the crowds, Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. The yoke of the law to, to complete the law, to fulfill the law, only one man's ever done it. His name is Jesus Christ. Everyone else looks at the law and the sacrifices, the Ten Commandments, and says, boy, I, I, I don't know how to do it. I fall short every time I try. So, so the, the version they had heard of Judaism, it wasn't very good news. It was a long, difficult path, a heavy yoke, a process for a Gentile that would need to begin with adult circumcision. Well, that's not an easy and quick decision. But fortunately, in Iconium, there were options on the table for those Gentiles. You know, the Jews sacrificed to the God of Israel, Yahweh. But the Greeks, it's kind of a Greek culture in this region of Lyconia and Lystra. The Greeks, you know, they could choose well, Zeus, Hermes, you know, Taylor Swift. Whichever Greek god or goddess they, they wish to shower their affection upon. And, and nobody'd really throw a fit. Theirs was a, a pluralistic society. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. You know, nobody really insisted upon any certain god you would need to worship. You know, any culture, even down to our modern day today, that adopts this pluralism, you know, it, it accommodates men. It, it amplifies the preference of men. It's a, 
It's a man's choice. How would you like to worship? What would you like worship to look like? Because in Iconium, the city's name even means uh, image or icon. In Iconium, there you could exercise freedom of religion. Please, though, just choose to be religious. In some fashion, please be a religious person. And those citizens in Iconium, they, they were used to a synagogue that you know, pretty much kept to itself. Though the Jews surely considered themselves monotheists, that means believing in only one God, they, they didn't strictly impose that on the surrounding Greeks. You know, the Jews didn't even really like the Gentiles very much. If their Iconian neighbors wanted to visit their synagogue, well, that was fine. If they didn't, that too was fine. The Jews didn't act as evangelists to the Gentiles. They really didn't even want them around. Follow me? In Iconium, in that plural setting, everybody could just go along to get along. Enter Paul and Barnabas. Verse 1 reveals that, boy, they, they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. So Iconium experiences a, a, a large number, we, we don't know exactly how large, but, but a solid core of Christian believers that becomes large enough to constitute a local church. Well, how do we know that for sure? Well, by the end of the chapter, as Paul and Barnabas are going to backtrack through these cities, uh, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, verse 23 will reveal to us that they appointed elders in every church. So, so there is effectually now a church planted within this pluralistic city of Iconium. And you know, if any local church, if it will simply just keep to itself, generally gets along pretty fine with its neighbors, but don't start evangelizing. Likewise, there exists uh, you know, a marketing, marketing industry today. Um, it's employed by churches everywhere. It's designed to attract as many people as possible and anyone who might uh, claim to be a Christian. It's very prevalent. Uh, churches are striving to get you know, the lighting just right and the vocals, the, the sound, and the effects perfect. You know, in order to, to offer a remarkable display, in order to lure already professing Christians, at least those who think they're Christians, uh, who, you know, in America at least, are perpetually shopping for an improved spiritual experience somewhere. Uh, quite effective, quite effective. Now, I want to make sure that I'm clear here that I'm not against striving to display your very best when representing Christ. In fact, when we 
prayed this morning, our, uh, every Sunday morning, the leaders, the sound booth, the worship team, representatives come together and pray uh, for the service. And this morning, uh, Anthony Alberino, one of, of our elders, was praying for excellence, that, that we would represent Christ with excellence. But it is also proven that adjusting the fog machine just right, it's possible to fill a sizable arena um, and do so without ever confronting your pluralistic neighbors with the truth of the gospel. It's possible. I've even seen cases where churches have successfully rented space from a Jewish synagogue. Now, I don't know how that works. I mean, I guess churches do what they need to do. But I must ask one question. How silent about the Lord Jesus, as Israel's only hope, do you have to remain to ensure that you don't upset your Jewish landlords? How quiet do you got to keep the gospel? Well, I don't think Paul could do that. But these examples expose ways that churches can mostly keep to themselves or market themselves just effectively to other Christians or just promise that they're not going to say anything to upset anybody or to provoke disagreement. And and a church can coast along for, for a good while within a pluralistic society. But boy, if you want to annoy the locals, become missional with the gospel. Dare to evangelizo. Commit yourselves to evangelize and to preach the gospel. And then discover what you will see, what happens in any city, including Iconium. Paul and Barnabas arrive, they're preaching Christ. If you're curious about that manner, see it in verse 1. The manner by which they spoke in the synagogue, uh, I, I can tell you a couple things about that manner. Number one, they were missional in their manner. They were intentional about evangelizing Iconium and converting people to Jesus Christ. How do I know that? (laughs) We're told a large number of people believed. So evidently they spoke in such a manner that they were persuading the dead. People dead in their sins, Jews and Gentiles alike, to commit their souls to Christ. Further evidence revealed in verse 7 states that once they are effectually forced to flee Iconium, Paul and Barnabas continued to preach the gospel. They, They kept on evangelizing, and the claim that they continued implies while in Iconium, they had already firmly engaged in the gospel already engaged in evangelism. So their manner was missional. They didn't come to town, just sit around idly, relax, just hope that something might happen somewhere. 
Nothing would happen. If you don't speak the gospel, nothing will happen. Secondly, the manner in which they spoke made much of Christ. They, they magnified the holy name of Jesus. In the previous city, city which was Antioch, uh, they classified Jesus as God's promise to King David to provide to Israel a savior. A savior implies uh, someone who rescues the perishing. Back in verse 23, Paul declared, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Therefore, therefore, Paul and Barnabas were speaking in a manner that is highly exalting Jesus. Similarly, I wasn't able to give proper attention to this last Sunday as to how the duo referenced John the Baptist. You know, obviously these synagogues must have been familiar at least with the notoriety of John. His baptism of repentance that John preached. And, and therefore Paul cited John's opinion of Jesus. Who John, who himself said, I'm not he, but behold, one is coming after me who is mightier than I. How much more mighty? Says the sandals of whom I'm not worthy to untie. To untie or to loose someone's sandals, it was the first step of a servant washing a person's feet. It's starting the process. And John the Baptist was confessing, this man, this man Jesus, I can't even begin to shine his shoes. Can't even start. There's an important lesson for us concerning our manner of speaking. Folks, when we present Jesus to a world that is lost, we have a duty to magnify him big. Big, big. He is the mighty Savior of the earth. We need, when evangelizing, as we've been discussing in an adult Bible class on Sunday mornings, when evangelizing, we need to reconsider language that makes little of Jesus. You know, telling people, you know, you can pray to him, and he's your friend, and he'll help you to stay alert to pass your test. He can even help you Get a better SAT score. You know, more of a genie in a lamp type Jesus than the Lord of all creation, God of heaven and earth. You know, think of the songs that we sing. Think of the lyrics of what we sing. We wouldn't sing little about Jesus. Why represent him to the lost in such a way? You know, too often we portray Jesus as, you know, just such a, a common wizard. He has a few kernels of magic corn that, that make reindeer fly. 
Well, he is the author of the universe, the creator of everything seen. He created your eternal soul, your, your conscience, consciousness, and he holds each breath that you take in your hand. You know, I, I pray here that every person who is present here recognizes that, that our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I hope everyone here recognizes that, that God created your soul. You're not pre-existent. You, you came into being at a point in time. You came into existence. Your mind, your consciousness, your soul. And, and God took that soul that he created and he knitted it in the womb, in, in the flesh of your mother's womb, and by using human DNA, which God also created, He gave you life. He breathed into you life. And you know, some came out. Some have green, airs, green eyes and blonde hair. Others have, you know, hazel eyes and brown hair or blue eyes. Yeah, to some, God granted excellent beauty. Magnificent beauty. To others, he made very ingenious. Still to some, he, he gave an extra measure of courage. Everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. And after we die, there is going to be an accounting of everything that he gave us And it's going to be an accounting of God's righteous standard, the holy law, the perfect righteousness of God. And this accounting is going to concern how we employed our beauty, how we employed our intellect, how we used our courage. Was everything that God gave us used to glorify him? Or was the beauty employed for adultery? Was that superior intellect that God gave, was it used to deceive others? Did the courage turn into murder? And because the evidence in each of us reveals that We've used what God has given us to sin, all falling far short of the glory of God. The wages which we have earned and the payment that we are due, we will receive when our accounts are settled. What each one of us has earned, what each of us deserves the payment that is due. It demands a death on a cross. 
It requires damnation, separation from God. It's because from the very beginning, from the moment we were knitted in the womb, our beginning was conceived in sin. Therefore, God said, This I will do. I will send forth my Son, my pre-existing Son, my eternal Son, to be born of a woman, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, to be knitted to human flesh in the womb. He will too be born under the law, but he will not sin so that he can redeem the others who were born under the law, that they might receive adoption as sons, we read earlier. As sons, as heirs brought into the family of God. And the wages of sin that we have earned, that is death, the wages of sin that we have earned, it was paid out to him. Paid out to him on the cross. But his body didn't see decay. He did not stay in the ground. Ground could not hold him. And the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John writes in John 1, verse 14, says, We saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. A loving Savior. A a giving Savior. A winning Savior. And then they say, you know, we saw him ascend in a cloud of glory as well. He's going to return from heaven again uh, with thousands upon thousands of his mighty angels in flaming fire. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what's coming to those who do not obey our gospel. Well, now envision yourself as a citizen of Iconium. You tell me, which God will you serve to choose? Will it be Zeus, Athena, Hermes, some other fabrication you've made up about God in your mind? And if you choose any other God to serve... Who then is going to be your Savior when Jesus Christ returns in glory? Who's going to settle your account for you? Folks, the manner in which Paul preached to Iconium made much of Christ. 
compelled people to believe in him as the only God, the, the only king, the, the only source of forgiveness of sins. And through the cross provided only one path of reconciliation to your creator who knit you in your mother's womb. How does that kind of gospel sit in a pluralistic society? The exclusivity of Christ, yeah, it spelled trouble for First Christian Church of Iconium. And as usual, the persecution arises from unbelieving Jews at the synagogue. They become infuriated at the sight of their friends abandoning the temple sacrifices, walking away to trust in a one-time bodily sacrifice of Jesus. They, they do not like it. But the Jews, you know, they're such a small minority in Iconium. They can't do much without enlisting allies first. And therefore, verse 2 shows how they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. How'd they do it? We aren't told exactly how, uh, but the Jews probably began saying some things like this uh, to their Gentile neighbors. Hey, did you know that those Christians claim that all you Zeus and Athena worshipers are going to burn in an eternity in hell. And the average Gentile would think, hell? Why would they say something like that about me? I'm a hard worker. I hold down a job. I pay my taxes to Rome. I'm a good person. What kind of twisted God, they would say, are those Christians worshiping over there they claim that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the, the only way, the, the one way to God. So, you know, since the founding of our city, we've never believed anything like that. These Christians are nuts. We can imagine how quickly it. It might have gotten out of hand. You know, a fury begins burning against these Christians. A fire has been, has been stoked. It's eventually going to boil over into a plot to stone Paul and Barnabas. And in verse 2, the Jews have now turned the Gentiles against the brethren, against that new church. And now it is those new believers who become the target of aggression from their neighbors. This is the reason that verse 3 states that Paul and Barnabas packed up their bags and got out of town as quickly as they possibly could, never to be seen or heard from in Iconium again. Oh wait, no, that, that's not what it says. Rather, verse 3 states, Therefore they, Paul and Barnabas, spent a long time there, speaking boldly 
with a reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace. They, they didn't back down. They didn't leave Iconium. And Paul and Barnabas, it says, spent a long time there with the brethren. And the reason is because of the hatred that was being expressed, stirred up against the church. You know, Greek, Greek scholars tell us that this, this phrase, this Greek phrase, spent a long time, it generally portrays a number of months. It's quite a long time that Paul and Barnabas remained uh, long enough to strengthen the brethren, to stay and absorb the abuse, the abuse from the Jews. That abuse generated against the church which they had just planted. This tells us a little something about the character of Paul and Barnabas. When the wolf comes, some would cut and run. But that's not the image of the shepherd generated by Christ himself. He said in John 10 verse 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who's not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. It's John 10 verse 11. Paul and Barnabas are not in this for the wrong reasons. Jeremiah, who prophesied of a new covenant to come, he spoke this hundreds of years before Christ was born. He said, for the Lord of Israel stated that, uh, quote, this is God speaking, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I've driven them, bring them back to their pasture. They will be fruitful and multiply. I'll also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend to them. They will not be afraid any longer, nor will they be terrified, nor will any be missing declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Knew the branches, don't we? I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in all the land. The Lord had promised through Jeremiah There'd be a righteous branch. He said, I'll raise up shepherds over my sheep. They aren't going to fear any longer. Paul and Barnabas aren't going anywhere. They're not going to flee. They're not not afraid. Instead, verse 3 reveals, they respond by speaking all the more boldly. Could be translated, spoke without fear. As, As they relied upon the Lord who is testifying to the word of his grace, uh, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And Paul and Barnabas have remained because they, they have this sincere love for these brethren whom Christ had purchased with his very own blood. And I had a brief discussion with a couple yesterday um, about the supreme value of the body of Christ. 
the local church that belongs to God, his flock, redeemed by the glory of God's own Son. How could they leave this brand new church, brand new Christians? Think about how much you knew when you first came to Christ. How could they leave this brand new church in a state that would leave them so vulnerable? Our scripture reading today from 2 Timothy 3 assured the, the persecutions, the suffering in Iconium, it becomes severely intense. Paul is going to be stoned in the next city, Lystra, as these same Jews from Antioch and Iconium band together to follow after Paul and Barnabas. Paul will later describe them as many tribulations And make no mistake, Barnabas and Paul, they said, we're going to stand in. We're going to take the heat. We're going to be the shock absorber. You know, imagine, imagine later when they are forced by threat of death, or not just threat, in impending death. Imagine later the point they must avoid stoning. Imagine if Paul and Barnabas had not endured persecutions. They had not endured with the flock. You know, when, when Paul and Barnabas return later on to appoint elders, you know, how feeble of a view would those elders have of shepherding God's flock? Paul and Barnabas just would have fled. You know, I've never adopted it. I've never adopted any life verse, really. But if I would... 1 John 3.14, probably be in the top three. John begins by stating, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Then he states, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Then John completes that thought by saying this, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Paul and Barnabas laid down their lives for this church. The love of the brethren in Iconium. This church is so new. They They haven't even had a chance to hand it off to the local shepherds. They know that the word of grace has come. Their preaching is the lifeblood of the church. Uh, Paul and Barnabas place themselves as a buffer between the local adversaries of the church. And the Lord testified to His grace through many signs and wonders at the hands of Paul and Barnabas. You know, they did, did much like this in, earlier on in Syrian Antioch the church that sent them out. Um, Paul and Barnabas stayed there quite a long time and taught the church, nurtured the church before Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church. They're strengthening for many months the saints, you know, while the Lord was testifying to uh, not salvation by works and the law, but to His grace 
that forgiveness of sins is extended freely and testifying to his grace he granted that signs and wonders be done by their hands you know since paul and barnabas had to remain uh, and the persecution was such that they had to speak very boldly and without fear it seems likely that these miracles were intended you know not as a means to win the lost i think people quickly default to that well, miracles always to win the lost. Well, people don't believe in Jesus by what they see. They believe in what's unseen. I don't think the miracles were here to win the lost. Seems that these miracles served as a source of comfort to the church that was already saved. Punishment is welling up all around them. And if this is correct, the the signs and the wonders through them, God was testifying to the church concerning the word of his grace, which Paul and Barnabas were telling them. God's testifying what you're hearing is true from Paul and Barnabas because there was a great controversy over the word. And who was teaching it right? And who was teaching it falsely? You know, Iconium didn't have access to 27 books in the New Testament. All they had were the 39 of the old. There's all kinds of conflict there. But is it the synagogue that has the right interpretation? Is it this Paul and Barnabas who just rolled into town recently? Who's given it to us straight? And I believe these signs and wonders served as God's stamp of validation concerning what Paul was preaching. You know, the signs and the wonders of Paul and Barnabas, they, they, they would have also set the adversaries of the church back on their heels. You know, it confounded the enemies. Imagine you're wanting to attack and these guys are doing miracle signs and wonders And verse 4 says, But the people of the city were divided. That can also be translated, Then the people of the city were divided. After the miracles. Then the people of the city were divided. And some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. The miracles brought by Paul and Barnabas, uh, it bought them some time certain length of time, a certain number of months of time that they were able to remain with the brethren, strengthening them for the tribulations that are to come. Verse 5 states, and, and when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, Paul and Barnabas became aware of it. And they fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and to the surrounding region, and there they continued to evangelize. There you have it. You know, Paul and Barnabas stayed as long as they possibly could, a good many months until an attempt was made to murder them. Now you can go. 
you know, by that time, the missionary team was, was able to rationalize with the new local church. You're getting a hang of this. You're understanding the true gospel. Um, we've given you all the time that we can. We have to go. They fled on to the next city down the road. They landed at Lystra, which we'll see in our next passage. Again, not next Sunday, Christmas Eve, where they're going to stone Paul and drag him out of the city. Uh, I hope we have some visitors next week. I don't really want to have their first exposure to us on that one. Um, They will stone Paul, and they will drag him out of the city, leaving him for dead but not until after Christmas. We're not going to have a stoning for Christmas Eve. Let's pray. Father, as um, we've learned what great love you've shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his dying for our sins, uh, we know you want that message to go out. We know much of the time the, the audience around us doesn't want to hear it. It's abrasive to think that there's only one way. Persecutions arise in many parts of the world because of this, this same message. And yet you've given us an opportunity uh, in our culture and in our day uh, to proclaim the majesty of your Son, the greatness of Christ, the kingdom that's going to be revealed when he returns. Father, you loved us so much that you would send a Savior that uh, anyone who might believe in him, trust in Jesus Christ, They'll have their sins forgiven. That they're welcomed into the family. That they'll be called a son and a daughter. That they'll be heirs in a kingdom that will have no end. Father, this, this is a good Christmas message. That the baby was born. That it was God and man. That his name was Jesus. And he has come to save his people from their sins. Or be glorified next week, we would ask that as we've witnessed, as we have uh, invited people, uh, that you would bring in people to hear the gospel next Sunday, that uh, your spirit would draw them in, that we'd be able to courageously and boldly speak the truth to them in love, and that they might glorify Christ for sending sending us such love. In Christ's name we pray.